My name is Virgie, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning, everybody. God, if I was Steve, where's Steve? There's Steve right there. Didn't you say you had 10 days last night? Do you have 11 days today? Honest to God, if I was Steve, I'd be wondering, what the hell is this? 11 days without a drink. Coming to a place like this, hearing people talking about all kinds of things like God and sex and traditions and reading steps and eating and having cake and selling women and all this. <laughs> Isn't this what the Romans did or something like that? Let him eat cake. I think that was Marie Antoinette. I'm a teacher. I corrected the guy already. Where are you? I'm really nervous um, of all the topics that I feel the least put together about in sobriety. It's spirituality. And I have a feeling it's going to be like that, most of my sobriety. Because when I know what I'm talking about, I'm in my deepest trouble. Uh, because I don't need anybody and I don't need God, that's for sure. And so when I talk about this topic, I know that I really am in need of inner guidance. I came with my sponsor this morning, so I brought my own goddess with me. Um, and um, I'm just going to share with you what it was like for me, what happened and what it's like today in terms of my spiritual journey, as much as I know. Most of it I was drinking through, so you know what that's like. But I did want to reflect last night about a couple of things. Um, seeing Marty and Lila up here with 60 years of sobriety between both of them, Book-ending Steve with 10 days of sobriety just gave me chills. I just thought it was marvelous. Um, that the strength of those two sober people to be on either side of a, a newly recovering alcoholic is just uh, an incredible thing for me to have seen last night. The other thing that I heard they say, and I think it was Sandy. Where the hell are you? There you are. See, when I'm nervous, I get into my, um, my street talk from New Orleans. <laughs> I grew up in the Irish Channel of New Orleans. I'm the daughter of a merchant marine dad who broke both of his fists in a fist fight. I had five brothers. I was raised with five brothers, two older brothers and three younger brothers. And so when I get anxious, I, I revert back into all of my old stuff. So if I offend anybody with my profanity, um, do a 10-step tonight on your resentment. <laughs> anyway, Sandy said last night, isn't it great to be gay? Isn't it great to be an alcoholic? Isn't it great to be here? And I thought, you're out of your mind. <laughs> my greatest sufferings came from being lesbian and being an alcoholic. And today I'm here to tell you that my greatest gain has been from being lesbian and being an alcoholic. When I had my 40th birthday party, all of the people who were invited to the birthday party were members of Alcoholics Anonymous or gay friends. And I remember as I was sitting on the floor winning my gifts and stuff, I looked up and I looked at everyone and I thought just in a flash, all of these people come from the two areas of my life that I've had the greatest difficulty with accepting um, and uh, I'm here to tell you today that it's, it's been a wonderful journey to 
to get into acceptance of these two areas. Because everything in me, which I will be sharing shortly, uh, everything in me didn't want to be either of those things. Everything in me. Except a couple of parts. (laughs) My heart and my head. The other thing that I thought was kind of peculiar is um, that I'm going to be the spiritual speaker. You have no idea what kind of a terror that strikes into me to be a spiritual speaker. I don't know what could have been more spiritual last night than hearing Lila going on and on and on and on. Um, And because she's Irish, she knows exactly what she's talking about. And being Irish and knowing what she's talking about is a direct result of being taught by nuns. (laughs) And if you remember last night, Lila was going to make a slam about nuns. Now, I've heard of gay bashing, but I'm here to to tell you there's also nun bashing. For those of you who don't know, I was a Catholic nun for 22 years, and that's where I did all my drinking. So, so Lila last night came this close to nun bashing. I don't know if you remember what she said, but I wrote it down. Oh, I better not read it. I'll have my resentment again. Let go, let God. <laughs> At any rate, if you remember when she was just this close to nun bashing, what happened? She lost her trend of thought. <laughs> now, in the Bible... People are struck dumb when they offend God. (laughs) So now God has a resentment. (laughs) So anyway. So my dad was a merchant marine. And... um, I grew up with uh, five brothers. Raymond and Warren were my older brothers, and then I was born. And when I was about two, my brother Tim was born. And then John came along and Ken came along. Now, in, in the Catholic Church, we have a thing called novenas. You pray for nine days. If you did it right and well, you're supposed to get what you want. Well, I thought that was cool. So I would pray for my mom to have a girl and she would have a boy. And then I would pray another novena when the next day was coming, and she would have another boy. So I remember at a young age feeling that God didn't quite know how novenas worked because <laughs> I just kept getting these brothers. I was a really shy kid when I was growing up, very, very shy, very withdrawn. Um, I liked to read. I withdrew into the book of ideas and uh, fantasies. I, uh, I loved church, 
grew up in a large Catholic parish. There was a big German church on one side of the street, and right across the street from that was an Irish church. And then down the road from that was a um, French chapel. And the churches in those days had a lot of statuary and so on and so forth. And I loved all of that. I loved the candles. I loved the incense. I liked all the stuff that the priest uh, wore. You know, it never occurred to them that they were in drag most of the time. <laughs> we didn't say too much of that in those days. You know. um, so on the outside, I looked like I was just kind of a, a good Catholic girl, you know, uh, doing the thing, going to Catholic school. I joined the choir. Um, I was in all of the little organizations that Catholic girls get into to help other people um, who are less fortunate than you are. Um, but there was also other things going on. For instance, I was in the choir. Who's got a beeper going on here? There he is. <laughs> Hope it's not an emergency. Um, so I would join the choir. And then, you know, every every morning we were supposed to go to Mass. And so... All the kids in the choir were supposed to be up in the church first upstairs, but I never quite got there for the beginning of Mass, and so I would hang out and wait because I was always late. So when all the girls came down to go to communion, I would just kind of zoop, get right in line, go to communion, and then go upstairs and be in the choir. And the choir director would be directing, and she'd look, and she'd look again like, when did you get here? Um, and that's sort of how I lived my child's life, I suppose, just kind of sneaking around, trying to be invisible, and just popping up in places where I, um, I should have been before but wasn't. I never really drank when I was a kid. I grew up in an alcoholic family, but I never drank. I had one drink when I was nine and another one when I was 14. I left home when I was 17 years old, and I thought I left home because I wanted to serve God. Um, you know, that's what Catholic girls did in those days who were aloof, uh, introverted, uh, dysfunctional, and so on. They left home, and they became nuns. Right, uh, Lila? <laughs> Lila knows. <laughs> so when I left home at the age of 17 years old, um, I realized that uh, the movies that I liked were all war movies. I really liked World War II movies. I liked John Wayne. I liked Gary Cooper. Because they always won the war. And um, I had a decision to make when I was in high school whether to join the service, the military service, and I wanted to do that because, um, basically, I wanted to learn how to use a machine gun and kill. <laughs> Honestly, it's really true. I wanted to learn how to use a machine gun so that if there was a war with communism, I would be able to kill a commie for Christ. Some of you who are raised in the 50s knew that that was the slogan, kill a commie for Christ. And that's what I wanted to do. Somehow, <laughs> I got redirected, and I wound up in the convent. Um, we don't kill people in convents, <laughs> contrary to what some people think. Um, but I wound up in a convent, and what I brought with me was all my packed anger that I would live out by watching gory, gruesome, brutal, bombing movies. All my packed anger, my sense of confusion about myself, who I was, what I was, um, I had a little bit of an idea that I was a little bit different than some of my other friends. But I wasn't quite sure what that was. You know, this was in the 60s, the late 50s. I didn't know much about being a lesbian in those days. And I didn't have very much interest in anything sexual. So um, there I went. 
trained up to St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, joined the Catholic Order of Nuns. That's where my drinking started, because the, the convent that I joined was the German Order, and we had beer and wine on the table for holidays and holy days. And so I would check the calendar for when was the holidays and holy days, so I made sure that I would volunteer to clean up after the meals. And so when the dining room would be empty and all the nuns would go back to, to uh, night prayer, I would help to clean up the dining room table and make sure that all the uh, wine was uh, drunk because it was a gift from God and so on and so forth. You don't want to waste God's gifts. So my drinking began like that. Never had a clue what was going on. That was the first split into drinking, into alcoholism. And that started working like your stories have worked. You know, we all have the same story about the progression of our illness. We started, it got worse, and then it got even worse, and blackouts. All of that stuff with alcoholism happened to me also. What else split was I was in a convent with all women. So I'm looking around thinking, whoa, this is interesting. I was 17 years old. And so I had another split gone. All my adolescent sexual energy, just going nuts in a convent, place filled with women, not knowing what to do with all of that. <laughs> so then I had this going on here, and this going on here, but I was all dressed up in black and white, sort of like I am today, I, you know. It didn't occur to me that the tablecloths and the napkins are black and white. I think there's a message here, and that I wore black and white, because I wore all of that long, long garb. I even have a scar right here. If you want to see it later, I'll show you. Um, from the, hat, the headdress that I used to wear. And I was very proud of that scar. And I would make it bleed. If you put that thing on in a certain way, whenever you would turn your head like this, it would just dig right into your head. So blood would go up because it was the fabric. So blood would go up on it, and people would say, Oh, sister, your head is bleeding. And I'd say, I know. <laughs> I'm just like Jesus. I was very much into drama, not, not plays and stuff like that, but into melodrama. When I took my first vows, this was uh, two years after I had entered, and so by this time I'm only about barely 19 years old. When I took my first vows, um, there was a big ceremony, of course, in the cathedral at St. Louis, and we all had to prostrate on the floor. Now, that is high drama for an alcoholic. You know, and when I had to do the the steps, and when people were talking about surrendering, I had that, that image again of me throwing myself on the floor, arms outstretched, telling God, you know, you can have me, body, soul, spirit, mind, everything. Everything is yours. My money. I had none, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and then the bishop, we had to each go up to the bishop, and instead of giving us a ring, in my community we did not wear rings, we weren't much into the bride of Christ thing, which I was glad. Um, but they gave, the bishop put on our head uh, a crown of thorns. Oh, that was great. I love that. I still have it, as a matter of fact. Um, my mother sent it to me. I don't know what message that was, but it was something. I'm not sure why she kept it. 
And anyway, they gave us a crown of thorns so that we could be like Jesus. And, um, and I loved that kind of stuff. It was all on the outside. All on the outside. The crown was on my head. I didn't let it pierce my scalp. That would have hurt. All the clothes, everything. One life here, drinking. One life here, going through my normal adolescent sexual experiences. And another life here, being a Catholic nun, telling other people how to serve God how to live a Christian, good Christian life. And just like many of you, those lives did not intersect. And I had to drink more and more and more and more and more to keep them from getting into each other. Only alcoholics can live like that because you have to drink in order to endure that kind of tension. At least I did. The dishonesty, systemary fraudulent, you know, that's what I used to call myself after I left. You know, that degree of denial of what's really going on, the death on the inside. You know, there was no spiritual growth. Notice I have not talked at all about my inner spiritual development. It just wasn't there. It was not part of my equation. I was into, I was into the dress, the crown of thorns, the blood on the head, telling people what to do. Did you ever try to tell one of your nun teachers what to do? You know, they just don't do that. You know, the nuns tell you what to do. You don't tell them what to do. And when you do, you're wrong. That's basically it. We were not allowed to have friends in those days, which suited me fine. I didn't want friends. It was a perfect place for me to be because the convent gave me an opportunity to live out my alcoholism. I liked being isolated. I liked not having to make contact with people. I liked being in charge. I liked knowing that I was right. I liked people stepping aside so I could be first in line. After I left, nobody steps, nobody steps aside to let me be first in line anymore. I liked all of that stuff, and I never, ever thought there was anything wrong with it. But inside, all I was filled with was anger, rage, confusion, and booze because my drinking escalated and escalated and escalated. I had blackouts like you did. I tried to stop drinking like you did. I'd start over like you did. People say, where did you get the booze? Same place you did. I bought it. I stole it. I connived for it. You know, if any of you um, are altar boys here, you know, I loved you guys when you grew up. I mean, after you were adults. Because when I was in the, when I finally went on mission, um, I would find the, the altar boys, the men, you know, the kids who grew up, now they're adults, and I would work those guys because they love to tell me about being an altar boy. And I knew if I could listen long enough to their stories about being an altar boy that they would buy me a drink if we were someplace where they were selling booze. So I would endure these stories, just waiting for them to get to the point. Which was, sister, would you like to have a beer? Would you like to have a glass of wine? Oh, sure. When I would go on airplanes, and in those days I was still dressed in all this stuff, when I would go on airplanes and the flight attendant would say, um, sister, would you like some tea? And I'd say, um, what else are you serving? Coffee, pop, blah, blah, blah. And I say, do you happen to have any scotch? And I love that chalk, you know. 
It was like a high for me, like a rush. Like, oh. And if I was lucky, there was this big fat guy sitting next to me who had been an altar boy. And he'd look over and say, you like Scotchester? And I'd say, oh, yeah. And before the flight was over, he had bought me two more. And he had told me all about his Catholic upbringing and so on and so forth. And I was just working and drinking. (laughs) Needless to say, eventually, all of that catches up with us. And if, and I think we're all the lucky ones here because something happens. What it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And what happened to me was, I just kept drinking too much. And my drinking got progressively worse and worse. I was teaching drunk. Um, I, did, I had those attitudes of hate and disdain for people that I was working with in the parishes. Um, I got into the, you know, I want to be a priest thing. I don't know why, because I did not like priests. Um, but it was just a thing to do. If you, were not, if you were a Catholic nun, you wanted to be a priest. So like the next stripe on your shoulder. So I went through all of that stuff. And none of that really got me anywhere. I was doing nothing, absolutely nothing, for the inside of myself. On Saturday nights, uh, eventually, I was asked to be the uh, one of the two young nuns who worked with the new recruits. I was a novice director. So young women who came into the community had to be trained to be good nuns, and so I was one of the two people who was supposed to train them. Bad mistake, real bad mistake. So on Saturday nights, I would go with these young people, and instead of being in the chapel at holy hour, uh, I would sign out a car, and we would go into Dallas, Texas, because we lived in Irving, which was a dry county. I would take them to Dallas, we would go to Shakey's Pizza Parlor, listening to the cowboys singing about Abilene, and um, we would have pizza and beer, and we would go home, and I would be absolutely drunk, totally drunk. My superior eventually caught on, and she sent my butt out here to the desert. I was fired from that job, and that was the beginning of my experience of that kind of ego blasting that happens when you start getting honest with yourself. I came out here to the desert, and um, my superior at the time, this was in 76, um, she gave me a little piece of paper that said, I want you to read this. It's a quote from the Bible. It might be helpful. And, don't give me anything from the Bible. I'm really mad. I just don't want to have anything to do with this bad stuff anymore. And the Bible quote said, I will lead you to the desert and I will speak to your heart. <laughs> Scrunched that up and said, I don't want anybody speaking to my heart, to my head, to nothing. I came out here with an attitude and a hangover big time. And I stayed out here and got progressively more and more ill. Physically, I got ill and I found a Catholic doctor. And he had been an altar boy. <laughs> And I got a prescription for a Librium from him. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I can drink at home and get pills from him during the day. And um, that was my attitude. Nothing happening on the inside, absolutely nothing. I'm not talking about praying or meditating or anything because it just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. I just got so sick that when I woke up one morning, June the 8th, 1984, 85, I was so sick, and you know the rest of the story. That moment of clarity comes, and I heard two questions. What has happened to you? What has become of you? And I thought, whoa. 
where those questions come from? Because I was so hungover. My brain was like it was in formaldehyde all night. What has happened to you? What has become of you? And it wasn't that kind of accusatory, what, what have you been doing kind of thing from a bad uh, attitude parent or a pissed off nun. It wasn't that. It was a very comforting, concerned, compassionate, loving question. What has happened to you? What has become of you? I haven't had a drink since. June the 8th, 1985. It's amazing. Like many of you, you know, I had tried to stop drinking. I had switched to other kinds of drinks. I would tell myself I'm only going to drink this much over the weekend. I would give myself a couple of weeks, and if I could not drink during that time, I kept trying to prove myself to myself that I did not have a problem. Now, when you don't have a problem, you don't have to prove to yourself that you don't have a problem. I never had to uh, arrange my drinks of chocolate milk. I never had to, you know, think about when's the last time how many chocolate milks have I had today, or you know, where am I going to get my next uh, chocolate milk? Never been a problem, but it was always a problem with booze. Um, so those two questions were put to me. Now, people in the program say those questions came from God. Okay. Those questions came from God. I can say the words, but it's not yet down in here. But I know for a fact that those questions did not come from me. So they came from something outside of me. The situation, situations mm, turned out, um, wound up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I heard people talking about the big book and the 12 and 12. Somebody here was talk, calling it the 12 by 12. Uh, my dad used to make lumber and stuff. And when I heard 12 by 12, I, I pictured this big piece of lumber, you know. I thought, what the hell did they do with a 12 by 12 piece of lumber? <laughs> um, but it's a 12 and 12. I'm a teacher. I need to correct these things. And so I looked through the big book, and I started going to meetings, and people said, go to a lot of meetings. And I got a meeting book, and I got three magic mark, uh, highlighters, a pink one, a yellow one, and a blue one. And I went to a lot of meetings, and if the meeting was really good, I highlighted it blue. If it was a so-so meeting, I highlighted it yellow. And if I was never going there again because they were assholes, I yellow, highlighted it pink. <laughs> so my meeting book was all highlighted. And because I was an English teacher... You know, I, when I started reading the big book, I thought, oh, Bill W. needed a few more courses in English grammar. So I started editing the big book <laughs> and making corrections and doing anything to not really read it, doing anything to not really get into it. And somebody early on said to me, Virgie, if you have trouble with the first part, read the stories in the back. So I thought, okay, I'll read the stories. I didn't know there were stories in the back. I had not gotten that far with my, my uh, red pen yet. So I started reading the stories, and the, the stories I happened to pick up were all men's stories. And I said, see, you know, another reason I should not read this book is because it's all about men. Um, I, my sponsor and I have this thing about the chapter to wives, you know. I think, why would I want to read a chapter to a wife, you know? And I have a wife. I'm not into that kind of thing either. Um, so somebody said, then if you don't want to read the first part, you don't want to read the stories about men, read the stories about women. So I started doing that. And that started making sense. I could identify more and more and more and more and more. So I started reading from the back, from the back of the big book forward. And then I got to a chapter four, we agnostics. And I thought, this one won't apply either, just like the chapter to wives. 
the chapter to employers. Chapter 4 won't apply to me either because, after all, for God's sake, I was a Catholic nun for 22 years. We agnostics would not apply, but maybe I could get a point or two. Or I could read it and explain it to other people. <laughs> so I started reading it. And there were three ifs, I-F, three ifs in the very first part of that chapter. Bill W. says, if, when you honestly want to, to quit drinking, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic, and if that be the case, you may be suffering, I like his way of getting into us, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And I said, I do not want to have anything to do with this spiritual experience stuff anymore. I've had my run with that, and I felt very self-righteous, you know, 22 years, blah, blah, blah. I sounded like an Al-Anon, after all I've done for God, you know. Um, <laughs> God does this to me, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I thought, I was desperate by this time. I mean, I did not have any other way to turn. I had no other way to turn. Um, I had left my community in 1984, in March of 84. And I left with a, a woman that I had met in my community. And we have been together for these 25 years. Um, and so, you know, I had left my community in 84, I had my last drink in June of 85, and that was not a coincidence. I think God was already moving in my life, getting me to face myself as I really was, and getting rid of all of that denial and that, that, uh, the dishonesty, the lies, the fraud. So I thought, well, I know a little bit about spiritual things up here, so maybe I can get another pointer or two from this chapter. So he said something about a spiritual experience will conquer it. And I thought, now, I wonder what he means by spiritual experience. So somebody points there. I go to the back of the big book. And it says on page 569, a spiritual experience is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. Now, everything about my personality needed to change. Everything. My attitudes, my outlook, everything. And so gradually I started reading that chapter. I put away my editing pen, and I just brought my mind and my attention to that chapter. Chapter 4 and Step 11, for me, are the two most important parts of Alcoholics Anonymous, for me. Chapter 4, because it talks about being an agnostic. Now, I did not think I was an agnostic. You see, atheists don't believe that there is a God, as far as I know. They deny God's existence. An agnostic don't, doesn't give a damn about whether there is one because they don't use God in their everyday life. There might be one, there might not be. I don't really care. I'm in charge. That's the agnostic that I understood. And that's what I could identify with. In my day-to-day -day life, it didn't matter if there was a God or not. I was in charge. I had to get myself together. I had to be self-sufficient. I had to stop drinking somehow. And so this chapter kind of hooked me. Bill W. told me that um, codes of morals, leading a good moral life, wouldn't help a person like me, because I'd already read chapter three also by that time. 
I had been moving back and back and back into the big book. Philosophies would not help. New Age stuff would not help. Uh, goddess stuff would not help. Getting into deep discussions about theological things would not help. They would not help because none of those had power. Lack of power, that was my dilemma. I had to find a power by which I could live, and it had to be a power greater than myself. That's straight from the big book. And I highlighted that, and I studied that, and I meditated on that, and I thought about that, and I was hooked by that whole chapter. Bill W. talks about the reality that some people might find it difficult to be willing to admit that there is a God. And he, he named four characteristics, and I fit all four. Prejudice, you know, pre- having prejudicial, pre- prejudicial feelings about the existence of God. Uh, sensitiveness, being touchy about it. You know, I was, all those, I was those three. I can't remember the fourth one. It doesn't really matter. I was all being obstinate. Well, no wonder I couldn't forget. I mean, couldn't remember. <laughs> you know, being obstinate. You know, I was obstinate about it. I didn't want to do all this God stuff. I didn't want to hold people's hands and pray the Our Father. You know, I had done all that. I didn't like that. I didn't want it. I didn't want people to tell me about the second and third step. I knew about that already. Yeah, there's a God. Yes, right. Give myself to God. I did that. I threw myself on the floor. I wore a crown of thorns. I had blood on my head. Blah, 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 blah. For 22 years, you know the story. I worked my ass off. You know, rah, rah, rah. You know, serving people and, you know... Being the first in line, and yeah, that was kind of nice. And... <laughs> but we are handicapped by that obstinacy. It gets in the way. Our prejudice handicaps us. Our touchiness. Nobody, nobody could talk to me about God. When other people would say, you know, I prayed to God and God told me, I think, what? God doesn't tell us things. You know, you're in delusion. You know, let me tell you about how God works. He doesn't, or she, or it, or whatever. Um, I know, you know, I did not know anything. It says on page 52 of the big book, why do I have to have God? Why do I have to have this spiritual thing? Now, see, every now and then I think about Steve. You know, Steve's 11 days sober. I don't know if you had been in the program before, so you know about this stuff. But see, when people would talk about this at AA meetings when I first got there, I could not stand it. I could hardly stay in my chair when people would talk about this stuff. But, since on page 52, we were having trouble with personal relationships. We could not control our emotions. We were a prey to misery and depression. Now, nothing is more miserable than an Irish alcoholic. Sorry. We couldn't make a living. You know, I thought that, you know, when I prayed for God's will, that God would show me where to go next, you know, on my next mission. Oddly enough, every two years, God was changing his mind about where I should go. When I got into this program, I learned about geographics. You know, God wasn't doing anything. You know, I was the one making up my mind about where to go. And I would go to my superior and say, you know, after deep prayer and reflection, sister, you know, I feel like God is calling me to Timbuktu. Um... Well, it wasn't deep prayer and reflection. You know, I was on an alcoholic hangover, having deep resentments about the pastor, knowing that they were going to find out any day now that I was drinking too much, and I needed to head out of Dodge before they found out. Um, That was what was really going on there. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. 
We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. All of these things were going on in my life, and I had no power to change any of that. None. I didn't know how, and I did not have the energy, the skills, the power, nothing. I had absolutely nothing, inside and outside. In Chapter 4, We Agnostics, Bill W. mentions God by 15 different names. I counted them one day. I think I didn't have anything else to do. And so I thought, well, let me see what he does about God. Because I went through the thing about the, the he God and all that stuff. I'm over that now. But, um, but on page 56, I finally found it. I think it's page 56. About the great reality and the divine presence. And I thought, yes, that's what I need. I need to know presence. Presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, because I had never experienced presence. I was either back there, bitching and moaning about what had happened in the past, or I was up there, terrified of what would be coming in the future, but I had never experienced sober being present, just here, never. Ever did I experience being sober, present. Because when I would talk to people, my mind was racing. I was real agitated to get out of that conversation. These kinds of experiences terrified me. I would go late to meetings and leave early because I did not want to be present there. I did not want to have to see people or talk to people. I didn't know how. I just felt a lot of fear about that. It says in the promises, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Well, I had terrifying feelings about being with people. And gradually, 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 through working the steps, uh, through meditating on the big book, um, I am learning day to day what it means for my spiritual path to practice certain spiritual things. One of my spiritual practices that I learned from the big book is to be present in the here and now and that to be satisfied that that's all there is. Now for me, just being satisfied with what is was never part of the equation. I always wanted more. I had two fears about my booze glass. One, that it would be empty and the other one, how am I going to keep it full? Full. Not half full. Like the little nuns would take just a little teeny bit. Say, sister, just give me a little teeny bit. And think, why? Why? Why would I do that? Being empty, my glass being empty, and my glass being full became for me kind of a metaphor for my life. Those are my two biggest fears, my two biggest difficulties. Fullness because of my craving. An alcoholic craves the fullness of everything. I want the fullness of leading a sober life. I want the fullness of a relationship with other people. I want the fullness of an understanding of the big book. I want the full, 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 full. Don't give me half full. Don't give me empty. It even says half measures of us nothing. So, there. <laughs> 
craving everything. I crave sobriety like I crave booze. It makes me crazy. I can't relax. When I'm nuts, like I was yesterday, I went to the traditions meeting in the morning. What time is it? It's supposed to end soon, no? I went to the traditions meeting yesterday morning, and it, it hit all of the buttons, all of my raw nerves about what's going on in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Every single nerve. Every nerve. Kate Brophy just tromped, tromped, tromped every single nerve I had about their traditions. So I left here, and I'm driving back home, and I live in Glendale across town, and I'm on Indian school, and it's under construction. So I'm thinking, how many of these construction workers can I knock off? (laughs) (laughs) Having just come from an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The craving for sobriety. Hmm? What do I have to do to be sober? Okay, I'm going to read the big book. I'm going to meetings. I'm working the steps. I call my sponsor. I do this. I do that. I do that. Now, what have I forgotten? What have I forgotten? Oh, I better do this. I better do that. Did I read my meditation book? No. I read the black one? Yes. But I didn't read. I didn't read the green and red one. I better do that. I'm going to go home this afternoon. I think I better work a ten step because I know I have a resentment about somebody this morning. What the hell did she do anyway? Oh yeah, now I remember that. Better do a big step. I mean a four step. No, maybe it'd be a 10-step. Yeah, I'll do a 10-step tonight. I need some paper. Where's the paper? I better go to the drugstore and get a tablet. Now I need a pen. What kind of pen shall I use? And on and on and on and on and on. That's how I was yesterday. (laughs) After going to the traditions meeting. (laughs) In the past, by the time I got home, and I was just physically, my partner said, when I went in, she said, you look like this. And she said, didn't you just go to an AA meeting? I said, yes. <laughs> this is not promotion. <laughs> now, I have a very loving partner. She's not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But she knows the steps and she practices the steps. She's in a different 12-step group. And she said to me, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, I don't know. So she left the room. (laughs) So I'm thinking, okay, well, what do I need? In the past, I knew exactly what I needed and what would fix it just like that. Immediately, because I felt that way a lot. That jittery, you know, you know how that is? That anxious feeling, the feeling you're just going to come apart and you're not sure why. And a drink fixes that in a flash. Yesterday, I didn't have to do that. It was beautiful outside. So I went in my room, I got my big book. And there's a chapter in the back, I forget the name of it, something about sobriety. (laughs) One of my favorite chapters, which is why I can't remember the name of it. Where is it? Because I want to tell you the name of it in case that's why you're here, just to know the name of it. It was story number 13, AA taught him to handle sobriety. Because you see, I could not handle sobriety yesterday. So I needed to, to get in touch again with the roots of my recovery, which is listening to people and reading stories about people 
who know what I'm going through. And I stayed outside, and there were lots of birds. And I read the story, and I was breathing, and I was more and more calm, and I became present to myself, which is to say I became present to God. Because in chapter 4, it talks about God is in the deepest part of myself. Now, I never knew that. See, as a Catholic, I was taught that God was up there somewhere, that God was out there somewhere, and that I needed to call him, like with a cell phone. And hopefully the battery was not dead on his line. So I contacted God over there. I don't, that's not my way today. God is in the deepest part of myself, which is the very place that I avoid being. Last night, uh, Lila said something about pausing. It says in the big book, we pause when agitated. We pause. When I was drinking, I could not pause. Not even for a second. But today, I pause when I'm agitated and ask, what do I need? Like my partner. What do you need? I pause when I'm agitated or doubtful. And I ask for the right thought. I ask for direction. I ask for help. And what I'm told these days is, just breathe. And you just begin, sit, and just breathe. In, out. Read a story. You know, we do that with children. I'm a kid. I need somebody to say, just sit here and read a story and breathe. That's all. I don't have to get a, a big, thick notebook and write out all my problems. You know? I don't have to get into the problem. I have to just get into the solution. I have to identify feeling really agitated and pause and be present to myself. To give myself an opportunity to let God surface. Because when I'm all like this, nothing can surface. Nothing. I've learned these spiritual practices in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not learn any of this in the convent. Not because I wasn't taught, but because I didn't learn it. It was probably all there. I just didn't see it. I needed to learn it here. I needed to learn it from people who came in this program with absolutely no religious upbringing, with no spirituality, to them at least. People who would come and say, you know, I've, I've had no understanding about God. You know, I don't know what all this is about. And I learned more from them than I did from listening to people in recovery who thought they knew a lot, like I did. You know? It was all up here. and Nothing was down here. I just want to end with one of my favorite God stories. About seven years sober, I became aware that when I would be outside walking, I'd see a penny on the ground. And I thought, hey, look, that's a penny. I'd pick it up, put it in my pocket. No big deal. Later on that day, or maybe the next day, I'd get out of my truck and there's a couple of pennies right on the floor of the driveway. Yeah, it's interesting, it's a couple of pennies. And I began realizing more and more that I would find these pennies everywhere. I'd go into the bathroom, a public bathroom. There'd be a penny on the toilet paper dispenser. I went to a library one time, got a hot dog outside at the vendor, sat on a bench, looked down to get my hot dog, and there were three pennies under a bush in front of me. Gradually, I began recognizing there's something about this penny stuff. And then I got into my pennies from heaven, you know. I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, I'm going to make a story out of this. I'm going to make this real high drama. But I began noticing 
that when I was having a difficult time, the thought would occur to me, if only I could find a penny, somebody is with me. Somebody is telling me that I am not alone. Today, I have 4,000 pennies. Actually, it's over 4,000. In the, in step 11, in the 12 and 12, (laughs) Bill W. reflects that some of us have difficulty bowing to God. We're not going to bow to anybody. Back is up, pride is out, that obstinacy, that refusal. And that was me. But I have bowed to the ground over 4,000 times to pick up a penny. Because that penny has become a sign for me that I am not alone on this planet. Now, I know that there are people all around me. I have good friends. I have an an exceptionally uh, blessed partner in life. So I know that I'm not alone. But there is a... There is a connection that has gone on the inside that no amount of people on the outside can fill. If that's not there for me, no matter how many friends I have, they can't fill that on the inside. These pennies came from that source, wherever it is. And I began looking at those pennies as a sign from the universe, from God, whatever, that I am not alone here. That when I am in difficulty, it occurs to me, if I could only find a penny, and I'll be darned if within the hour I do not find a penny. It's like someone saying, I am here for you. In the smallest valued coin, I am here for you. Don't look for me in a $100 bill. I am a penny. I am your penny giver. That's God. That's one of the gods for me. If Bill W. can call God 15 things, I can call God a couple. One of the things I call God is my penny giver. Some time ago, I went to San Diego, and I was looking for a penny. And I thought, I'm in San Diego. I'm on the beach. How about a sand dollar? I want a sand... You know, if this thing's going to work, I would really like to have a sand dollar. So I put God to the test. I walked down three little steps onto the beach, and stuck in the sand was a one-dollar bill. Wow! And I thought, this is so cool. I did not walk 50 feet. Then this wonderful wave came in, and when it left, there was this gorgeous, white, complete, whole sand dollar that had washed up on the beach. And I thought, doesn't God have a sense of humor here? So 4,000 bows later, I am still learning to look for God in the smallest things. Breathing and being present right here, right now. And that that is enough for me. Now, I don't live like that all the time. Yesterday, it was not enough. Uh, Every day, it's you know, it's not enough. You know, I crave, I crave everything. That's part of being an alcoholic. We crave everything. And we want it all. And we want it all the time. And we want it now. 
life it doesn't happen that way. That's what I'm learning. So to be satisfied with just being in the here and now, breathing, if I'm with someone, to be totally with that person to the best of my ability. Just there, period. No expectations, no fears, just there. And that's really difficult for me. But that's my spiritual practice. Um, I meditate by being present, being mindful of what I'm doing, so that when I eat, I eat. I taste my food. These carrots are going to become part of my body. These carrots were brought to my table by hundreds of people. And I thank God for all of those people. So meditating while I'm eating. Just the simple things when I'm washing dishes. You know, cleanse me of all my faults. Help me to be clean in my mind and my heart. Those things have become very, very important to me. And I've learned all of those from here in this program and I am deeply deeply grateful Alcoholics Anonymous has given me back my life on the inside that's where life is for me it's on the inside chapter 4 and step 11 are the taproots of my sobriety today because of myself I have no power to, to do anything except drink and I know the end of drinking is death and so God either is or isn't says that in the big book God either is or isn't. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's step three. And for those of you who are new in the program, um, let the God thing happen. Just bring willingness. That's what people told me. Virgie, just be willing. Are you willing to let God have another try at your heart? (coughs) Okay. (laughs) So, as you go through today... Pause when you're agitated or doubtful and look for pennies. And my hope for you is that you find some. And that's a sign from a power greater than yourself, as it is for me, that you are not alone, that God is here. That's it.